Ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kura Koto Katoa, and welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, with me, Andy Bryant. I'm a Wing Commander in the Royal Air Force, and I'm the Defence Advisor in the UK High Commission. With everything going on, opportunities for commemorations have been somewhat derailed this year. However, we wanted to find a way to honour the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. And what better way than to sit down via Zoom with one of New Zealand's foremost experts on the battle, Dr Adam Clarsen, who joins us today. Adam is a Senior Lecturer in History at Massey University, Auckland. Throughout his career, Dr. Clausen has worked to preserve and tell the stories of those who fought in the battle, authoring Dogfight, The Battle of Britain, and Hitler's Northern War. His expertise on New Zealand's air power history is not limited to World War II, as he authored Fearless, the extraordinary untold story of New Zealand's great war airmen in 2017. Dr. Clausen's academic career spans decades as well as hemispheres. He obtained a doctorate with the University of Canterbury and was a Fulbright Visiting Scholar at Georgetown University, Washington, and is a Smithsonian Institution Fellowship recipient. Dr. Clarsen, welcome. We're talking today about the Battle of Britain, but perhaps you can help explain a brief overview of the battle for those who aren't familiar, and why something named after a country on the far side of the world that took place over 80 years ago is relevant to modern-day New Zealand. Hi, Andy. Yeah, the context of the battle of Britain really arises out of Hitler's invasion of Poland in September of 1939 and then his subsequent successes in um, Norway and Denmark in April of 1940 and then of course the amazing success against France and the Low Countries and immediately after that Hitler sought to bring Britain to the negotiating table to try and settle things in the West to prepare himself for his main objective, which of course was the acquisition of living space or Lebensraum against Russia. So he really wanted things to be brought to an end in the West. Now, Winston Churchill was new, had been newly appointed as Prime Minister of Britain and was not going to acquiesce to this. This forced Hitler's hand, in his own mind at least, to prepare to, if Britain wouldn't come to the negotiating table, perhaps they would have to be defeated militarily. Therefore, he ordered plans be drawn up for the invasion of Britain, which is commonly known as Operation Sea Lion. One of the prerequisites for a successful invasion of Britain, according to the Germans, would be the acquiring of aerial superiority, which would mean, of course, the defeat of the RAF, so that landings could be taken place across the English Channel in South England. To this end, Hermann Goering, the head of the German Air Force, or the Luftwaffe, assembled two vast air fleets in Belgium and France, numbering some 2,600 aircraft. On the other side of the channel, the RAF had Bomber Command, Coastal Command, and Fighter Command. And it would be Fighter Command that would be the principal unit engaged in the aerial combat during the Battle of Britain. Hugh Dowdard the commander, had some seven to 800 single-seat fighters for this battle. What would follow is a conflict that would run across the summer of 1940, from 10 July all the way through to the last day of October of that year. Ultimately, the RAF and Fighter Command principally would win the Battle of Britain, 
and the invasion that Hitler had perhaps anticipated never took place. And because of this, the Battle of Britain became incredibly important, a significant turning point in the war. As George Orwell said to the British people on radio during the war, it was as important as the Battle of Trafalgar had been in the early part of the 19th century. And this is because it meant that simply meant that Britain was knocked, was not knocked out of the war um, and would go on with its allies to fight the Germans in North Africa and defeat them at the Second Battle of Al Alamein, then the Battle of the Atlantic, which was won principally by Britain and its allies by 1943. And then, of course, because Britain was in the war, it became the staging post for the largest amphibious assault in the history of warfare, Operation Overlord, the landings at the beaches of Normandy, followed by the liberation of France, the defeat of the Germans in the West, which in turn, would shape post-war Europe in the ensuing Cold War. So the Battle of Britain is this pivotal moment in the Second World War, and it's why we think about it every year when we come round to its anniversary. So whilst New Zealand and the UK clearly have a very long intertwined history, how did New Zealanders end up being wrapped up serving in the RAF and the RNZAF as, uh, during that period? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story. It, it finds its roots really in the 1920s and 1930s interwar period with the aviation craze. These long distance flying pioneers like, like um, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith from Australia, who'd been a great war pilot. He was the first person to fly commercially between Australia and New Zealand in, I think, 1928. And then you had our own Jean Batten with his solo flight from England to New Zealand in 1936. So you had these people that were constantly appearing in the papers and caught the imagination of young New Zealanders. But we also had a kind of a cultural thing going on as well. There were vast numbers of magazines and books and movies associated with aviation and this flying craze. So you had um, things like Hell's Angels, Dawn Patrol, Biggles, um, really all of them suggested that the life of a military pilot was exciting, it was noble, and at times could be kind of romantic. So you had this kind of background to all of this. Meanwhile, of course, in the 1930s and 1933, the Nazis seized power in Germany, establishing the Third Reich. And of course, they engaged in the remilitarization of the Rhineland, um, a rearmament program, the Anschluss with Austria, the Sudeten crisis, and Britain began its own rearmament program, recognizing that there was a potential for a future war. But it wouldn't just be it wouldn't just be people from Britain, of course. They would be stretched across the British Empire, and in fact, RAF. Um, recruitment in the 1930s went from about 400 officers per annum to about 4,000. And some of these would come from the Dominions all the way down here in the South Pacific. And the RAF placed uh, advertisements in New Zealand papers. And there was one that appeared in the Dominion in the, in the latter part of the 1930s, which described um, a pilot's life in the RAF would be to men who wish to adopt an interesting and progressive career, unquote. Leave was described in the advertisement as being on a generous scale. And although the candidates had to be physically fit and single, they didn't in fact need previous flying experience. 
This was accompanied by a picture of a Hawker hurricane in profile, the promise of 500 pounds annual pay, a 300 pound gratuity at the end of it all. And this was kind of heady stuff for Dominion young men looking for a life of adventure. Now, the result of this would be, not just with New Zealanders, that the RAF and Fighter Command would have quite a diverse foreign contingent, a, a really an international force. Of the 3,000 airmen that would fly for Fighter Command across the summer of 1940, 600 of them were in fact from overseas. These included Polish airmen, numbering 145, you had Canadians, Czechs, Belgians, our Australian cousins, 32 of those would fly operationally in the Battle of Britain, South Africans, and even a handful of Americans. And the New Zealanders numbered a healthy 135. So the 135 New Zealanders meant that we were in fact the second largest foreign contingent within the Battle of Britain. In other words, the New Zealanders would be modest in numbers, but not insignificant during the course of the Battle of Britain. So what do you think the RAF and, and RNZAF learned from the battle? Well, I'm thinking more along the lines of kind of the New Zealand context. If you think about it, one of the first thing that was learned was that Hitler could be checked. He could be defeated. This was, this was an unusual experience. As I say, he'd already been successful in Poland, Denmark, Norway, France and the Low Countries. And remember, France was a great power. The overrunning of France in mere weeks was an incredible achievement. It seemed as though Hitler had the Midas touch. But the Battle of Britain showed that he was not, um, he could in fact be defeated. He was not undefeatable, if I could put it that way. And so that was a massive turning point. I think the other for New Zealanders was that they would still be in the war. If Britain was still in the war, it meant its empire, its commonwealth was still in the war, including its most distant dominion of New Zealand. And this meant for New Zealand, of course, a longer war with deepening involvement in the European and Mediterranean theatres of the war. If you think about the New Zealanders and the ground war, the second division would see action in Crete, North Africa and Italy, but also other New Zealanders served in the RAF and Bomber and Coastal Command. You also had New Zealanders in the Royal Navy, in the Battle of the Atlantic, and of course in the Merchant Navy. So I wonder if you can perhaps touch on a couple of the New Zealanders who became prominent during the Battle of Britain. Well, obviously, I think the most, the, the most prominent, of course, is Keith Park. Park, uh, born here in New Zealand, uh, in the small town of Thames on the Coromandel. He had been in the First World War um, an artilleryman at Gallipoli, then he'd served on the Somme where he'd become injured, and then transferred because he was found unfit for service with the artillery, he decided to join what was known as a ragtag organisation, which was the Royal Flying Corps at the time. And he became an ace, which has meant he had more than five victories, in fact, 20 victories with his observers in Bristol fighters in the First World War, in fact, went on to Commander Squadron, 48 Squadron, served with the RAF in the interwar period. And by the time we get to just before the Battle of Britain, he is an Air Vice Marshal um, directly beneath Hugh Dowding. And not just any Air Vice Marshal, he's the Air Vice Marshal in command of 11 Group in Southeast England, which would bear the brunt of the attack from the Luftwaffe flying across the Channel. And he's 
he is well known and highly regarded and of course went on to become an extremely brilliant tactician and strategist. He had his own um, Hawker Hurricane which he would fly between the airfields. He was um, in many ways some people believe it was his leadership of 11 Group that led to the success of the RAF's effort with Fighter Command a truly perhaps our most influential military leader of the Second World War was right at the heart and the hub of Fighter Command's effort against the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain. And of course, um, there's a magisterial book that's been written about him by Vincent Orange. I mean, some other New Zealanders, of course, of the 135 New Zealanders that were pilots and observers, there were a collection that did extremely well of the top 10 aces in the Battle of Britain. Two of them were New Zealanders, though we were modest in numbers. Uh, Brian Carberry with some 15 victories in his Spitfire. Also another Spitfire pilot, Colin Gray. Brian Carberry had been a shoe salesman in Auckland. And of course, um, Colin Gray had failed his medical examination twice before he was accepted into the RAF, but he would go on to secure 14 victories in the Battle of Britain and then would become our most successful fighter pilot of the Second World War with 25 victories um, by the time it ended. The other person to mention, of course, is the man who really looked like a fighter pilot, square-jawed, strong, strong-looking uh, boxer, former rugby player, and that was Al, Alan Christopher Deere, a great pilot, well, I think with 54 Squadron, and his book that he wrote, Nine Lives, is one of the legendary autobiographies to come out of the Battle of Britain and describes his career. Truly an exciting story of, a, of an individual who nearly lost his life on many occasions during the Battle of Britain. The other person I would like to mention would be Archibald McIndoe, neither an observer nor a pilot or an airman, but a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. The three services in the UK for the Army, the Navy and the Air Force all had their own reconstructive surgeons. But the one who was most heavily and oversubscribed during 1940 was Archibald McIndoe, born in Dunedin, trained in New Zealand, he would be the person that would be dealing with a number of the airmen from Fighter Command who would suffer terrible burns during the Battle of Britain. One of those was a New Zealander, John Fleming. Fleming was flying a hurricane when its gravity tank in front of the instrumentation panel was pierced with cannon fire and the aviation fuel coated on fire went all over his legs by the time he crash-landed in the English countryside and managed to escape the aircraft, virtually all his clothes had been burnt off his body. He was taken to a local hospital. Local villagers came out and took tennis rackets and tied his fingers to the strings of the tennis racket to keep the fingers apart. They were so badly burned, fearful that they would congeal together. He was taken to a hospital in which the surgeon said they would have to amputate his legs, and he refused to allow them to do that. And he was left, in his own words, to rot in a dark corner in the hospital on morphine until he was found by Archibald McIndoe, who took him back to his hospital and worked miracles on him. And of course, Archibald McIndoe is famous for the techniques that he developed, some already pre-existing, but that he refined the saline bath, uh, skin grafting techniques, 
and the rehabilitation program with a village outside the hospital, which was the safe area for airmen who had had their noses, ears, um, eyelids, um, all reconstructed um, at the hands of this great surgeon. So I think across the Battle of Britain, we have not only Sir Keith Park, um, of course, who we have now statues of, one in Britain at Waterloo Place, but just recently in 2019, we have a, a very handsome statue of Keith Park in his hometown of Thames on the Coromandel. Well, it's great to hear the, the, the breadth and depth and bravery of those that were involved, both of the few and, and the many behind him that supported and, and the leadership of Sir Keith Park. I think it's interesting hearing about um, Alan Deere as well with the, the, uh, the, um, the aircraft that we've got in the Battle of Britain Memorial flight in the UK that still bears his colours uh, to kind of recognise the, the strong contribution of, uh, of New Zealand. Turning to your book, Dogfight, this tells the story of uh, the New Zealanders that fought in the battle. And why do you think these stories still resonate today? I think because the Battle of Britain firstly took place in what might be called a kind of unambiguous just war. The fight against the Nazis and a militaristic Japan casts the Second World War in a different light to other conflicts in the 20th century. So it finds itself in what people would call a righteous just war. Um, the Battle of Britain as a subset of the Second World War has um, a kind of almost romantic gladiatorial allure, I think, in the minds of many people, which really belies, of course, the fact that in, it was, in fact, very brutal in the aerial combat. But unlike, you know, the war on the ground and the mud and dirt, it took place in this vast, clear blue arena between men flying modern fighting machines, you know, the incredibly glamorous Spitfire and the Hurricane, and then the stories of these Brill Cream boys caught in a titanic David and Goliath struggle, and not only just a David and Goliath struggle, but a struggle that would determine the fate of Britain and its commonwealth and empire, and in fact, Western Europe. And so I think with all those elements, elements together, the Battle of Britain has this power to capture our imaginations even today. Um, some, you know, even, you know, as Winston Churchill said so eloquently, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And though modest in numbers, the New Zealand airmen in the Battle of Britain can proudly count themselves as a few of Churchill's few. Well, at a time when it's very difficult to get people together in the way that we'd like to, to commemorate um, events such as the Battle of Britain and support veterans. Hopefully our discussion today inspires a few people to find out a bit more as there's such a rich depth history to, to uncover and potentially look to support some of the charities that might be struggling at the moment to, to raise the funds that they so desperately need to uh, help support the veterans from that period and in more recent conflicts. Um, so hopefully people think out about getting, getting down to support their local RSA. Thank you very much for your time um, and uh, hopefully we'll get to uh, talk again soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.